now I think, to be quite honest, I think if, if you send your kids to Bible study thinking they're going to learn the Bible and they're going to come out of that with some sort of Bible mastery, I think that's a big mistake. Yeah. I think you, can, you should assume they're not learning anything. What's up, boss? This is Abraham's Wallet. We span the gap between the austerity of obedience to God and the prosperity rising from faithfulness. Run your home and your dough like a biblical boss. Steve, and welcome to the Abraham's Wallet podcast. Uh, you know, you might be getting welcomed again in a minute because we're recording an intro, but it's actually after we record. Oh, this is weird. It's a time. We're doing a time. It's like a Tarantino movie right now. This is bizarre. Wow. So I just wanted to give our listeners a little context for the treat that they are going to enjoy. Um, just so that their palate is prepared for what's coming their way. Uh, we have been longtime followers of The Masculinist, uh, which is Aaron Wren's newsletter. You're going to talk all about what that is. Sure. Uh, but it was a real uh, honor for us to get a chance to sit down with Aaron and hear kind of his story and what he thinks the main issues are uh, for, for guys who are trying to navigate the intersection of household and church and even where to live and how to respond to government. So yeah. a lot of the things that we've talked about came up in this conference. You said it was an honor to talk to him. Why do you say an honor? For those for those of our listeners who have never heard of Aaron Wren. Yeah, Aaron has, and he'll, he'll give you the whole story, but he started out just like we did, writing a, a blog for his buddies. And he's ended up with a sizable audience. And... Um, I think that one of the things that has always drawn us to his newsletter, which every time I wake up, if there's a masculinist in my inbox, I usually go, well, there goes 45 minutes of the workday because I'm going to be taking this apart. <laughs> um, you know, he puts a lot of care and thought into those articles. And there's been some that I thought were so spot on and I was is pumping all the way through it and there's others when i went i don't know but i don't know what i think about this um but i definitely appreciate the level of just intellectual rigor that aaron brings to really whatever the conversation is that he's having yeah i i feel like he's he's a he's kind of a, a researcher uh on our team when it comes to well masculinist so he's he's interested in helping men be better men yeah. So without further ado, let's kick off the interview conversation that we got to have with Aaron Wren from The Masculine. Um, his name is Aaron Wren, and he for years has uh, written a newsletter called The Masculinist. And Mark and I are both uh, huge fans and love the way that Aaron thinks. Um, he, he wants to pursue God in, in all things and brings a great cultural perspective to exactly our window of the world, which is helping, um, helping men to lead their homes. Our tagline is that uh, you're to lead your home and your wallet, your finances, like a biblical boss. 
So uh, Aaron has Aaron has certainly helped me to do that in the way that he's in the way that he's described the world, and we're quite pleased to have him. Who is a, he is a local to us uh, these days. He now lives in Indianapolis, which is just an hour and a half from me, and I'm happy to go into Indianapolis and eat their good food and go watch the Pacers whenever I can. So, anyways, Aaron, thank you so much for for being on Abraham's Wallet with us today. Thank you for having me, and thanks for that uh, very kind introduction. Oh, I, 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 you, you have obviously done um, so much work to think through. It's, it's something I appreciate about you is that I can always see how much care you've taken in every sentence, and I, I, I love it when people put together a, a well-formed uh, argument and and to build precept upon precept, which you do and. Anyway, so I'm saying all that to say we really trust and appreciate you. So whatever you've, whatever comes to mind today, we'd love to hear it from you because we trust you and we want to oh. recommend you to all our people. That's one of the reasons we've got you on. Well, well, thank you. And you know, and I take that very seriously. Um, you know, when I, every time you get bigger, you got to keep leveling up in terms of the level of rigor that you bring to bear on it. Uh, you know, I, I started out um, both in uh, my profession of urban policy, uh, which is what I was doing for the previous 10 years, and then in uh, kind of the masculinist, started off as sort of a very small scale online voice. And so, you know, when you when you have a small audience, it's sort of like being on Twitter. It's like when you think you're tweeting to your 200 followers and who are mostly your friends, uh, it's one thing, but then some tweet goes viral and millions of people see it. It's like, oh no, what just happened? Right. So I do think there's this element of of um, you have to continue to grow and mature as your audience grows, and uh, just realize, you know, I, I had to realize when people were telling me like they're actually doing some of the things I'm talking right. about in in this thing is like there is a huge weight of responsibility uh, that comes with that, and so I, I feel like I do need to be very rigorous in what I'm saying, because it can affect people's lives in a profound right. way. And would, do you consider yourself to be a, um, more like a freelance teacher? Do you, do you consider yourself to kind of be a, a preacher without a pulpit? <laughs> I actually call myself a cultural critic. Okay. And the reason that I do that is, um, I did not want to classify myself as a, you know, Bible teacher or a theologian right. or an ordained minister. Um, and I, I draw on Christian precepts, but most of what I talk about are things that are not directly theological or, or Bible things. I'm not saying the Bible says this, so you must live your life this way. I tend not to do that right? Um, because I don't want to set myself up as someone who's an expert or an authority sure. in areas that I don't have a credential or, or something of that nature. So where I try to look at what, what I think I bring a lot of value to is talking about Christianity outside of essentially the immediate biblical theological domain. Because a lot of pastors can get themselves in trouble when they start writing or opining on, say, financial issues or um, you know, dating issues, people start doing what they say and it doesn't work. Mm. And it kind of can call the gospel into question because you're like, hey, my preacher told me to do things this way. I did it. And my life really got blown up. Uh, and so 
I, I think that it's safer a lot of times if people in kind of the lay world um, are able to do more of the kind of, I hate this term, but I just, for lack of a better word, life coaching, yes. talk about kind of life issues from a Christian informed perspective, but not necessarily direct Bible teaching, because I think, you, you know, when it, it's like, it's like when a scientist starts commenting on something where they're actually outside their area of expertise, but they're trying to draw on that credential of their PhD. And so um, I, I think that, and I appreciate, for example, that a guy like Tim Keller, who was a pastor in New York for a long time, always used to say, hey, I'm, I'm a preacher of the gospel. I don't opine on politics. That's not my, that's not my specialty. Right. And it's this idea of like, you know, I need to stick to my, what I'm doing, I, I think it is good. And so, and so I think what, what I do is actually quite complementary to what they do uh, in that regard. Um, and, and so I sort of talk a lot about the culture, a lot about different, um, you, you know, sort of diagnostic frameworks of the world. I actually come from a management consulting background. Mm. So that's sort of what I do, um, you know, helping companies navigate technological and business change. Um, you know, that's, there's some there's some similarities to thinking about the church or thinking about think about our own lives uh, as well. So that's why as a, it's kind of a long-winded way of saying I like to consider myself more of a cultural critic uh, than a per se Bible teacher, but I want everything to, to, that I do to be very much, you know, in a Christian, consistent, Christian-informed sure. way. Can you, can you tell us, uh, I didn't know that about your, your uh, consulting background. Can you tell us a little bit more about how, how the masculinist started? Yeah, so, um, you know, my first job out of college was with a uh, large company now known as Accenture. Uh, so I was doing technology consulting for corporate America, mostly um, implementing computer systems for them, although I also did some technology strategy work as well. And while I was there, uh, after about 15 years of that, I started writing a blog back in the heyday of blogging called oh, yeah. The Urbanophile, The Lover of Cities. And I just felt like I lived in the Midwest. I was living in Chicago at the time. And I felt like the Midwest didn't get a lot of love. And there was no real indigenous R&D about what it meant to, to, to be a city in the, in the heartland. And so, um, you know, I started writing that. It became very popular very quickly. And so I left um, Accenture in order to attempt to essentially professionalize that and turn it into a, another career. You know, it, as it happened, um, you know, my life sort of went downhill <laughs> at that point. So, like, the next three years were pretty terrible, uh, to be quite honest. Um, yes, these these were was, your famous three three yeah, terrible years. Yeah, three terrible years. You know, my uh, you know I got divorced. Uh, you, you know, the business I was trying to start didn't go very well. Like basically everything I tried to do completely failed. Um, so what I but what I would say is that um, you know it was much more difficult. It was a much more difficult undertaking to uh, try to switch careers than I thought it would be. But on the other hand, it actually did succeed at the end. And so I ended up uh, working for a think tank in New York on urban policy. Uh, I've been doing consulting work in the space this year for uh, a variety of clients. And, and, and so I sort of did that career transition. And one of the experiences of that that helped me with the masculinist is I already had gained the confidence to intellectually disrupt 
a new space because I'd started this blog and it had been successful. And I, I came to realize that I had some important things to say on the topic. And a similar thing was true with the masculinist. I started it as a newsletter while I was working at this think tank. And, um, you know, it was really born out of my experiences. Some of them in my, my club, my three terrible years, uh, I need to write a book at some point that uh, has a memoir element that kind of goes through that. I, I, I don't like to talk about it in part because it's just, I can't really make heads or tails of what happened myself. Mm. I've got like a hundred pages of notes of things that like journal entries of just like for like just nine months of it. Um, wow. But, you know, I sort of had to, you know, I kind of through that kind of realized a lot of the teachings of the church were just not accurate on, yeah. on men's issues. And I started changing what I was doing. I read a ton of, of, of sources on everything from like changing my diet, changing the way I worked out to the way I interacted with women. You know, I went through the whole manosphere and basically read the entire thing. <laughs> it was at the time, you know, I mean, I, I think I don't want to say I quite did that. Um, but some of these sites, I literally went through every single article on them and did some study on that. I read a ton of books. Wow. And then, you know, and then I put stuff in practice, kind of put stuff in practice in the field, um, so to speak. You know, I'm like, hey, I got to like apply this to my own life and see what the results were. And, you know, the results turned out to be pretty good. Again, and you were writing throughout this whole period. No, I was not writing about that. I was not doing the masculinist at all during this period. Um, I was uh, this is sort of the pre this is sort of the lead up to the masculinist. OK. And kind of once I felt like I'd achieved some mastery over the material and had lived my life kind of in accordance with these principles that I developed. Um, you know, a lot of things adapted from others, of course. And, you know, felt like it was, it was, it was showing some success such that I could credibly speak to other people about it. I, I, I really decided to start the masculinist. I mean, originally my, I was going to start a different website that was going to be tr strictly about making money. I wanted to create a side hustle to make more money because mm. I was living in New York city, working for a nonprofit. I'm like, I need to find out how to make more money. Mm. And I ended up decided, no, I'm going to focus on this mission oriented thing, even though it's not a money maker. And so I started the masculine as a newsletter. And uh, I, I uh, originally said, I'm going to try it for a year. I had like 35 people that I asked friends and people that I knew who I thought would be interested. I asked if they would sign up for the list and spread the word if they liked it. And I said, if I get 500 subscribers through word of mouth at the end of the year, you know, I'll keep it going. Otherwise I'm going to shut it down. Mm -hmm. Well, at the end of the first year, I only had like 200 and something. So I'm like, I'm going to shut it down. And I even emailed all my charter subscribers, told them I was shutting it down. And then like a week later, Rod Dreer writes a post basically dedicated to some article I'd written, The Lost World of Evangelicalism, mm. and sent me like 1,500 subscribers overnight, kind of out of the sky. I mean, this is sort of the things that happened to me is something totally unexpected just strikes like a bolt out of the blue. Right. And, uh, you know, if he hadn't written that post, I would have shut this thing down and I've gone on to different things. Maybe I would have tried to launch that online business. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but it took off from there and has really continued to grow and grow and grow. And, um, and so I, you know, this, this year, um, you, you know, moving back to Indiana really wanted to line up a way to figure out how to do it 
you know, on a, on a, and originally my point was, <laughs> again, I was almost going to just shut the whole thing down again when my think tank role ended. Um, Cause I'm like, I can't just keep doing this for free essentially as a side project. Yes. That is too time consuming. And, uh, but then I ended up moving here doing this consulting job and was able to essentially find a way to, you know, move forward with this in a much bigger and much more public way. Um, and, uh, and so here we are. And so this is like my, uh, this is like my second, essentially my second go around of essentially reinventing myself professionally. Um, and, uh, you, you know, again, I have, having already had like one bad experience, maybe I should have, I should have been cautious, more cautious about it, but I think I've structured some things differently this time. And, uh, you, you know, wish me luck, but I think this is a very, very important space. And, you know, yes. it's an area where there's, there's a lot of things that need to change, you know, kind of in the world of the church. Not that the, not that the older generations got everything wrong. I, I don't want to be overly critical of them. Um, but that there's kind of new, new eras, new generations, new problems, and we need people to be able to speak to those, uh, to those problems in those in the world that we live in today. Yep. Yeah, that's good, Aaron. This is Mark. One of the things that that you've talked a lot about that I'd love to get into in a minute is the the shift we've seen in the culture from a positive view of Christianity to a neutral view to now what I think you've called a negative view. I'm just curious, before we dig into maybe some higher level stuff, just still on your story, was that a piece of leaving New York, getting out of a certain cultural scene, even freeing you up to work on a project about biblical masculinity and feel like you were free to do that? Uh, was, was geographic location a part of allowing you to make that, that shift? Yeah. Uh, yes and no. I mean, what I would say is I love New York. I'm definitely not negative on New York. And if I had unlimited funds, I would certainly continue to have an apartment in New York and would spend, you know, part of my time there. You know, in my ideal universe, I would love to be able to split my time between there and here. But it was certainly in my mind that if I were able to um, professionalize the the masculinist, in order to do that, one of the things I was going to need to do was cut expenses significantly. And so, I, you know, getting out of New York uh, definitely had some appeal for that for that reason. One, it was just cheaper. Um, I either really needed to go back into the for-profit work world, like consulting, in order to make enough money uh, to really just be a wise decision to stay in New York, um, but or or move somewhere else. So I, I did that. We came back here, but also, you know, my wife and I are both from uh, rural Southern Indiana, small town Indiana. We have a three-year-old, and being closer to family, um, I think, was a big important driver of that. Um, we wanted to be close to our family, and also, you know, one of the things about New York was there's just such high churn in the population there, uh, in the parts of Manhattan and kind of the the milieu that we were in, that it would be very hard um, to maintain long-term relationships with people there particularly other people with kids because they're just constantly going. So we're like, like in the first year or year and a half that our after our son was born, like four of the other moms with similar age kids 
uh, that my wife, you know, would, would see at church left. And so, you know, that kind of churn is, isn't, doesn't necessarily provide a healthy environment for child, child rearing. And um, so there was a combination of factors. I think there was some, um, some idea that it would be cheaper and would be good professionally for the masculinist, but also we had family reasons to be here. So it's, it's a win-win, right? Um, there's a lot of cheap places. Let's be honest. There are a lot of cheap places to live. Cincinnati's a great city. Louisville's a great city. But I think being close to family was important and being in a place where I have an organic connection. And by organic, meaning I was grew up here, right? I lived here. I have connections here. Yep. You know, my fa- you know, I have, there's, there's some roots in this place. We tend to undervalue, I think, having that kind of organic connection to people and places. And so I'm, I'm in a place that is very culturally familiar, um, even though in many respects, you know, I resonate more with kind of the, you know, uh, in the culture of New York. I, I think this is like a, a healthier place to be. Hmm. Stephen and I, like you said, have been following the masculinist. I think we were probably in that Rod Dreher uh, sprinkling of- 15- Yeah, we probably were that found you through through Rod. Uh, but we've been following you for a while and I've always thought this would be a really fun conversation to have here. Uh, saw what you did with Doug Wilson and kind of have appreciated the, the degree to which you've stretched out and talked to all sorts of people. Um, but the thing that perked my ears up was the, the, the last uh, newsletter that came out before for today's was on financial life in the negative world. And then just today you put out one on uh, live not by lies, which is also something we've talked about a lot on this podcast. And in my mind, they're very connected. <laughs> the, the two episodes. That That's right. Put out. Yeah. Um, so I would just love to hear a high level overview of the thinking you've done on positive, neutral, and negative world, and then uh, maybe we could talk a little bit about how that impacts the way that people are responding with their money and their households. Sure. So when I say positive, neutral, and negative, what I mean by that is this is the way that society views Christianity and sort of Christian moral norms. So the positive world is um, what I basically view as pre-1994. That's a little bit arbitrary, uh, but I had some reasons to pick that date. Um, but pre-1994, in essence, to be known as like a good church-going Christian man was sort of a social positive in much of the world, right? It's like, hey, this guy's like a high character, moral fiber. He's an upstanding citizen, right? And there was still this idea that like Christian norms were sort of the moral fabric of society. The neutral world, um, which I said was from 1994 to 2014, was a sort of transitional phase in which Christianity is no longer a positive, it's no longer normative, but it's not necessarily a negative either. And it's, it's an era in which we, we have this sort of pluralistic cultural school, you know, c- c- public square. We might think somebody says, hey, you know, I'm really into punk rock and you're into Christianity and, you know, I'm into this and then you're into that. And it's like, we can all do our own thing, but come together in this public square and do it. And then after 2014, 
we, we transition to what I call the negative world, which is to say, to be seen as a Christian, particularly in kind of the professional managerial class, upscale society, is sort of seen as a social negative. It's like not cool. It's like kind of uncool to be a Christian and traditional Christian um, moral frameworks are really seen as a threat to human flourishing and a threat to kind of the new moral order of society, which is very different than that. And so we've seen a variety of, of ways that the church has kind of uh, mobilized and, and, and organized itself and engaged with the world in those different eras. And one of the things that I've said is this kind of negative world era is one that the church has really struggled to adapt to. And there really has not necessarily been a lot of writing or research or thinking on what it means to live in a world where if you are a Christian, that's going to be viewed as a social negative. It's going to reduce your social status and where, you know, the things you believe are considered, you know, kind of like crime thing, right? They're considered by bad things. And I thought Rod Dreher's book, The Benedict Option, and then Live by, Not by Lies, his current book, both were talking about what does it mean to live in this negative world. And this has been one of the themes that has sort of been an undercurrent in, in my book, I think, or my, my work. One of the things I, I believe is we need to rethink how we live as men in this kind of world that we're in. And, and money is clearly part of that. When you live in a world where you might be canceled at any time, right, or fired from your job, you don't have to be a Christian to be fired from your job for any random reason um, to these days that it just, you know, you just have to restructure your life financially and in many other ways to be prepared to live in that environment. And so that's one of the reasons I, I wrote that blog post, which is like, how can we start structuring our lives to be more resilient in the face of perhaps hostile society or even anti-fragile to take a, uh, to, you know, Nassim Taleb turn. Yeah. We do. Well, I'm, I'm curious what you think about the, the effect of that living in negative world um, for, for the church and for people of faith. I tend to think it's a wonderful thing for us. What do you think? Well, I, you know, I think it's one of these things that uh, it, it can end up being a good, but I don't think it's something that we should seek. If you go back to the sure. early church, you know, the uh, the martyrs for the church were very influential in attracting converts because the Romans looked at people being thrown to the lions or whatever and said, they must really believe this stuff because they knew no one would be willing to die for Zeus. Right. right. It's like these people demonstrate, I mean, man, there must be something to this. And to be considered a martyr has always been considered to be, you know, instantly you're automatically considered a saint, like uh, in the Roman church, if you're a, you know, if you're a martyr and it was always considered this amazing uh, example of like in faith and action, but nevertheless, it was always warned, you should not try to become a martyr. You have to be prepared to be a martyr, but you should not seek out martyrdom. You should not seek out um, persecution. And so I think that's kind of how it is for us. I think that how we respond can be a good thing, but I don't think we should necessarily hope that we live in like, you know, terrible times. Oh no. I think um I think in general what it has done 
And, and this is not the only trend going on. There are a lot of economic and social trends going on far beyond the church that are also being impacted. And so I think what you're seeing, similar to how the election of Donald Trump um, really kind of exposed all these fault lines in conservatism in the Republican Party and has kicked off some kind of scramble, but we don't know how exactly how it's going to end. Maybe the old guard establishment will be able to seize control and like the Tea Party, you know, the whole Trumpism movement will fade away. But it, it's like there's a lot of turmoil, right? And I think we see a similar thing in the church in that there was kind of this, especially in this evangelical world, there was always kind of this, this kind of way of doing things. And now it's sort of cracking up. Right? And we're seeing all these fault lines emerge over different things. One of the big, one of the big ones, and this is not a focus of my newsletter. Um, it's actually more a focus of my urban work than my kind of Christian work has been over this whole woke kind of wokeness on race and different things. And so I, I do think you have our you know, attention. Well, I mean, just like this idea of like, there, there's kind of been this, um, you know, the, the uh, a lot of people in the church are really are uh, focusing very heavily on kind of issues of like racial justice or whatever, yeah. often very much imitating the sort of patterns of thought that have been out in the world, like with the Black Lives Matter movement, for example, for that. So there's sort of an echo of that in the church. Um, and then there's a lot of people on the other side of that that are like, this is like, they would say this is um, not right because this is all like critical race theory or whatever. And this has been something that's been a fault line running through churches, through denominations. It's kind of rotten. For example, the Southern Baptist Convention, the heads of all the Southern Baptist seminaries just issued a statement sort of rejecting critical race theory and stuff like that. And so I just think, just like Trump, I mean, I think the key is, you know, just like you have to like have the, whether you like Trump or, or hate Trump, the point is that Trump represented in a sense, this disruption and tremendous dissatisfaction that had been out there and is putting things in politics and turmoil in kind of conservative land. And similar things are happening in the church, right? It's happening over, you know, again, some of the, the things on race, it's happening over various teachings on LGBT issues. It's happening on a lot of different fronts. And so I think as a result, there's this kind of time of uncertainty and flux in kind of the kind of evangelical churches and you know the roman catholic church of course has its own you know i'm not catholic i'm less familiar with it but all these kind of abuse scandals and all these different wars between kind of conservatives and, and more liberals within the, the different hierarchies and it's so just a lot there's just a lot going on and this is at the same time that church attendance has been declining we've had the rise of the nuns as they call them people who say they have no religious affiliation um, and so I think we're in this kind of time of like uncertainty. And what, what that means is like the old formulas don't work the way people think they used to work, right? The old political formulas of let's get together and sing hymns to Ronald Reagan don't work in the Republican party. You know, the old formulas in the church work. And I think in a lot of ways in America, the old financial formulas don't work. I mean, we all know, for example, that you're not going to work for IBM, moving all over the country, wherever they send you, dedicating your life to the company and retiring with a pension and a gold watch. Right. right at age 65. That's just not happening. <laughs> you so, know? So, and, and so there's like, 
a lot of the old formulas, hey, just go to college. You have to go to college and get that degree. Well, that may be true for some people. A lot of people have taken on enormous debts, and now they're like, what am I going to do? You know. So there's all this uncertainty, I think, in the financial world as well. Yeah, Aaron, that's interesting that I think one of the, the reasons that we named our, our little thing here, Abraham's Wallet, is because we believe that there's something really, really, really old that might be a solution in, in terms of how we run households and even how we think about wealth uh, within the church. And so when you say the old formulas of going to college, uh, I wonder if you agree or, or not uh, with kind of our, our proposition that that the solution to some of this negative shift in the culture is to look at um, family structures, financial systems, even how we choose to earn income uh, and pass it on to our kids uh, that don't so much depend on a culture that views us in a positive light. But that's really, um, you know, it's foreign to uh, our grandparents, perhaps, but completely familiar to uh, 30 or 40 generations prior to us. Um, what are your thoughts on, and, and you know, Rod, Rod Dreher also talks about this in Live Not By Lies as one of the, the anecdotes to sort of what he calls soft totalitarian uh, culture is, is um, a strong family system that kind of at the end of the day can uh, not, not care too much what the culture thinks about the way they're doing things because it's sufficiently uh, built up in and of itself. Yeah, I, you know, I, I admit I don't know all the details of exactly what you guys are, are uh, putting out, but my impression is it's, it's essentially part of this um, just like I think in the like in the 70s and the 80s, there was this movement called the Back to the Land movement, if you're familiar with that. And it was sort of came out of the counterculture. And it was this idea that we need to go back to rural nature, live more right. in harmony in nature, live off the land. So like, that's how I ended up in a rural area in southern Indiana. My mother was caught up in that, um, which wasn't bad. I mean, I might say it's bad. She's still out there. Uh, but it was a thing that happened. Now there's sort of a movement, which I call the Back to the Household movement. And it's a lot of people are, are increasingly saying, look, when we shifted to an industrial economy and eliminated the household economy and we became dependent on wage labor and we depend, became dependent on purchasing all the goods and services we produce and we sort of depend on state to provision everything for our kids, you know, we've lost something, right? So we've lost things and i think you're right that the bible right his entire bible is written in a pre-industrial culture of functional households that actually do things right there's a household economy that produces goods and services that cooks you know grows the food cooks the cooks the food right educates the kids cares for the six and there's thick relationships between extended families and relatives and I feel like today people, a lot of people are trying to grapple with what it means to try to restore something like that um, in a modern society. How do we recreate some of this idea of a more substantive household system um, 
that is not as at the mercy of the marketplace uh, and doesn't just outsource everything, you know, under the sun commercially. So I don't know if that's totally where you, you guys are going, but that's what I feel is something that's kind of been, uh, I've been ruminating on that myself sure. and I'm trying to become more aligned with that kind of thinking. And I think that we, we definitely think there's some interesting uh, avenues to be explored in the folks who are really pushing hard on almost a, a back to the land type movement. We definitely think the, the household being strengthened uh, is a positive thing. At the same time, we're, we're guys who will tell a young 23 year old that it might be the best thing he could do to go get a job for 10 years. Um, yeah. Because we, we've run into a lot of guys in our ministry that have heard some of this exciting household uh, productivity talk and then thought, well, I guess a job is just for a sucker. I'm going to go be an entrepreneur. And they really don't have the, the ammunition that they need to launch that in, in a right. positive way. Well, I, I agree with that. I mean, I think the average person like, you know, my goal for, I have a three-year-old son. My goal for him is not to go to college. But, you know, it may well be that even 15 years from now, right, when it comes time to go, he'll still have to go to college. The average person still needs to go to college, I think, realistically, in our society. Yeah. The average person still has to have a job. <laughs> um, not everybody is an entrepreneur. <laughs> this say, yeah. One of the things we have to recognize um, is that you know, the world that we live in is structured differently than the historic world. So there, unless you decide that you want to be like Amish or something like that, or join the Bruderhof, right, as uh, Roger <laughs> likes to talk about the Bruderhof, um, who, by the way, the Bruderhof have mountains of money. It's, it's an extremely <laughs> profitable enterprise. They, um, you know, you're, you're really going to kind of be – you know, tied into the system that we're tied into, right? There's no extracting ourselves. You know, I, in the current masculinist, I put a quote from Ernst Jünger um, talking, I mean, he wrote it in the 50s, actually. Yes, I put um, the first passage on my to-read list. Thanks yeah. to you today. Yeah. So he talks about like this, hey, you know, in the old societies, like if you kind of got like exiled or something, you know, you had more, much more autonomy because you were much more self-sufficient. But we are tied into systems that render us basically very helpless. You know, we can't very easily detach ourselves from the food infrastructure, the healthcare infrastructure, all these things. And I think, you know, the, uh, some type of radical detaching and going off the grid, I'm not even sure that's the right answer. You know, and a few kind of very, very intrepid souls may try that. Um, but I do think about, that's why I think, we need to be thinking about what it means to work on sort of household economy in the current context. And a big part of the household economy, I think, is, um, is, is not seeing it purely as an economic entity in the sense that we see it, that is as a revenue producing business, but maybe as just like, you know, you know there's, there's many more functions taking, taking place there, right? To me, homeschooling is a great example of reinvigorating the household. We're going to educate our own kids. Yes. Now, again, I still think, it's a huge I'm not saying homeschooling is for everybody. Homeschooling may not be for everybody. And I think we still, in essence, with homeschooling, 
replicate replicate the model of sort of institutional schooling um, compared to maybe like you know if I think about it right if if this were pre-industrial society I would have a trade like let's just say you know you, you know I make tires right and um, and so I make tires for wagons or whatever and I probably inherited that trade from my father and my son would come to work probably from around age seven, let's say, start kind of hanging around the business and learning the trade and learning the business from me. And, you know, or, they, or if I'm farmer, you know, my sons would be out helping me in the field, right, from a very early age. So it was sort of practical hands-on learning, right? You know, if I had a daughter, right, then, you know, my wife, you know, the daughter would be learning how to, you know, spin the cloth and sew sure. the clothes and, you know, preserve the foods and do all this stuff because they, you know, there was definitely, and still today, sexual division of labor is a fact in yeah. every human society. And so, um, but the key is, right, that you was sort of a hands-on, like apprenticeship model. It wasn't like we're at home with a studying our chemistry book. And so I do think even with homeschooling, we started to do, do it the standard way. And I'm not saying, not saying that we shouldn't do it that way, but you know, this goes to show it's not as easy to detach from, again, the industrial system, but nevertheless, cooking your own meals instead of getting takeout for everything is an example of creating a household economy, mm -hmm. you know, entertaining yourself, right. By playing right. card games is a form of the household economy, right. You know, instead of paying to go out and be entertained by someone else. Right. So there, there's a lot, you know, starting, leading a Bible study at home, leading a Bible study at home, you know, having a people over for dinner, like here in Indianapolis, there's these dinner clubs that, that people will get together every Sunday night. Uh, they're not doing it this year, but they would get together at like a rotates from one person's house to another hosting dinners with the same groups of people. And whoever's hosting gets to invite like guests to come as well. So it's like building relationships, creating hospitality, doing it in your home. And so there's a lot that can be done. Um, there's a lot to be done around household economy that doesn't necessarily involve being an entrepreneur. We think of home as, homes as outposts, and each outpost has to duplicate the culture of the kingdom. And in that way, they have to be standalone. We should be lashed to a network, but, but we have to duplicate the, the, the uh, nucleus of kingdom life in our own homes. Um, you even mentioned today in, in what you published today about being um, alienated from institutions as, as kind of being, uh, that can be a, a force that thrusts us into, well, certainly a different headspace, but um, it can be, as we were discussing, can be something that leads to growth. It can be something that leads to health. My read is that family life has become more central to spiritual life at large, and the institution has become less important, less central. Do you, do you have any comments on that on that trend? Well, I don't really know if that's the case. It may uh -huh. be. It may not be. Um, I do think historically there's been a lot of outsourcing yes. of spiritual formation of children yes. to um, to kind of religious institutions. And I think a lot of these suburban megachurches, 
you know, they get a lot of programs for the kids. They get programs for the adult, but it's very, it's very structured. It's very program driven. And you can kind of plug yourself into that. And I think it works for some people. Um, but I do think today people, you know, this is one of the things Rod writes about with the rise of what, what's called moralistic therapeutic deism. Yes. Right. Among the youth. So it's like, I'm stunned. I mean, I, I met a young guy who's a masculinist reader who had kind of grown up in one of these mega church environments and literally didn't even have like the first clue about kind of Christian theology or thinking. Yeah. He was, he was very, very clueless about what it means, you know, a lot of things. So I'm like, Whoa, you simply can't assume that like when I was a kid, I went to Sunday school. I learned all the Bible stories you know, you, you know, you had to do all, you know, what are these sword drills, find all the books, oh, the yeah, verses, all that yes. stuff. Like now I think to be quite honest, I think if, if you send your kids to Bible study thinking they're going to learn the Bible and they're going to come out of that with some sort of Bible mastery, I think that's a big mistake. Yeah. I think you could, you should assume they're not learning anything. And that doesn't mean I'm you know, negative on Sunday school, but I think that the reality is you do have to have an extraordinarily high degree of diligence you know, as a, um, you know, as a parent in order to even ensure that your kids forget about your kids rejecting Christianity, you know, even learning enough about it to reject it, you know, requires a lot of effort. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I think, I think on people's parts, um, I do think we can take it to an extreme and become very negative towards institutions. Like I think the family is a foundational institution but the church is, is also a foundational institution. Sure. And we have to be like engaged in the church. And that's one of the things that I, I really feel uh, I, I will kind of maybe put my theology hat on here a little bit. Yeah, and go say, ahead. I look at the new Testament and I see that, um, you know, there, there's kind of like two things that are, are kind of going on from the standpoint of kind of the work of Christ in, in, in the world. One of them is, I think it says in Colossians, transferring us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his sons. So we're being brought out of sin into life. But one of the other thing, the other thing that's really going on a lot of the New Testament is the inauguration of a new kind of community called the church. And most of the epistles, for example, we tend to read these epistles as if they're written to us personally when they're written to churches. And so much of the commandments then things that are in the epistles are really focused on life within the church and life within what does it mean to live in this new form of Christian community and dealing with the, the, when it says, you know, bear, you know, put up with one another, bear one another's burdens, you know, all these things, don't let all this malice, wrath, or anger. It's talking about how do we live in this community? And I think it's really, really challenging. The fact that there's so much, written about should you eat the meat sacrificed to idols or not and like responding to those kind of brass tack situations in the church shows that you know living together in the church is actually extraordinarily difficult even with everyone having this allegiance to christ and with the power of the holy spirit i mean without that it's hopeless but with that yeah. even it's very difficult and so i do think we um we, we have this situation where we need to be embedded in our church. At the same time, many of our churches are very weak and nowhere near where they need to be. So I think just as where the family is not where it needs to be, the church is not where it needs to be. And we need to think about 
how do we engage right in the church as well? I think that's a very important, very important. I don't think we can just, I don't think we can, we can't approach church as a entity, right? Yeah. The way that I would think we go there, we sign up for programs. They got a great children's ministry, right. good Sunday school. You know, church has to be much more, there has to be much more substantive um, presence to us in this church. And that's one that, you know, much like creating a household depends on other people. And uh, so it's, it's, it's another one of the conundrums that we have, but I, I do want to sort of say that the, to me, the family and the church, the family, the church and the state are essentially the three entities in our society. And even the state, although I'm not necessarily a huge fan of, you know, of our, our government in a lot of ways. Yeah. You know, again, I think that, you know, the Bible is pretty clear about being in subjection to the governing authorities you know, giving honor to whom honors do, paying taxes to whom taxes is due, you know, and uh, there is this sense in that the state has a has a legitimate role to play in a legitimate sphere as well. That's one I think that's more remote from us. So I think we're most able to impact our family than our church. You know, I'm somewhat semi indifferent. I don't I don't want to go into rebellion against the government. Sure. But nor do I feel that I should be investing in the government. Sure. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm not investing in the government. Well, do, do you have any um, tips or uh, recommendations for how our household leaders can be hard to cancel at, at this time, that they can be resilient? Well, I mean, one of the things I just laid out in this financial life in the negative world is – you know, just creating, finding ways to create margin in your life. And there were a few kind of practical tips that were in there, none of which are original to me, you know, not all of which have I fully put into practice myself. I'm a long way from where I need to be uh, myself. Um, but um, one, of, one of them is, you know, uh, for example, this guy, Larry Littlefield, and, and he's not a Christian even, he's just writing this as sort of a guy who's a kind of a economic analyst, if you will, deeply, deeply quantitative. I believe he actually works in the real estate business, knows a ton about it. Hmm. Um, but his his point was, if you're married, you should always live on one income. <laughs> Don't hmm. live on two incomes. Live on one income and save the other one. And here's why. He's like, look, you always need to be saving for something. Saving for putting your kids through college, saving to buy a house, saving for medical issues, saving for retirement, mm-hmm. right? And all these things is like, and if you're, if you're just living, if you're spending everything you're making, you're a, you're more vulnerable <laughs> yes. because if somebody loses their job, you're underwater and B you actually shouldn't be, you, 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 you know, you need to save that money anyway. And like, C it keeps you from the ratcheting up your lifestyle, which is very, very painful to go back. <laughs> Right. You know, it would go backwards in a lifestyle. Now, where I think Littlefield, because he's not a Christian, the, the thing that he doesn't talk a lot about giving, right? So there's no concept of giving. Right. Now, he, he might, I mean, he might talk, maybe I've talked about that. But, you know, you lose a lot of flexibility in life. You can't be as generous if, if that's so. Think about like, hey, maybe you don't live on one income in a two income household necessarily. But like right now, my wife is not working while she's home with our son that's only possible if we were living on one income. Right. So if we had been dependent on two incomes, like a lot of people are, you know, Alex would be in daycare right now or, or something. And so that becomes one where if you want your wife to be able to stay home with your kids, if you want to be able to homeschool, if you want to be able to be more generous 
in giving to your church or various charitable causes, you kind of have to cut your spending. <laughs> you know, I think that's just, there's kind of no substitute for cutting spending. And I can tell you as a guy who, when I was working in consulting, you know, started living a high roller lifestyle, going backwards is really painful and hard. And so anything you can do to avoid inflating, inflating your lifestyle um, is, is a no brainer. I also say to the extent that you can avoid debt, you know, that, that's another one. It's like debt is like a millstone and it's obvious people are really, um, really struggle with debt. And that's why, um, you know, guys like Dave Ramsey <laughs> is so yeah. popular. Yeah. It's like, Oh my goodness, how do I get out of debt? Yep. And, um, you know, Dave Ramsey, I mean, I, you know, he, his style doesn't resonate with me, but I know he's done a lot of great things for other people. Um, and, and so, you know, avoiding consumer debt is, um, is really important. And what I like about Dave Ramsey, one of the things I like about Dave Ramsey is, is your first priority is getting a thousand dollar emergency fund, mm-hmm. not paying off debts. Mm-hmm. Because if you don't have an emergency fund, the minute something comes up, right, you have a flat tire, you need to get fixed. You are immediately going to be hitting the credit card again. Yep. So you're in <laughs> so, emergency mode always. So thinking about that, thinking about those little things and like creating that. And so, I, you know, I think you know, a lot of people, I also highlighted this idea of financial independence, retire early, which is a sort of millennial movement of people saying, save, really? live like a monk, save 70% of your income yep. and you'll be retired by age 35. Yep. Probably not going to do that if you're a Christian, because you probably are, have more kids than these people do. You probably tithe or something like that. So, you know, you're not saving 70%. There goes 10% right there. Um, but, but nevertheless, um, you know, that, that might be, they, you know, I think sometimes they take it to a little extreme and that works for some people, just like some people like, like really extreme diets that like, you can't eat this, 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 or this, because some people are like hardwired to work well with that kind of structure. Other people don't. That's why I say the, the best financial plan, right. Is the one you're going to follow, <laughs> you know, to some extent. Sure. Um, but, but this idea, like, I'm not saying you should never take out a car loan or never take out a mortgage on a house or something like that. But like, I mean, credit card debt is to be avoided if at all possible. And I think it's a lot of things. It's like, if, if we, you know, I, I look at myself, if I can't pay cash for it, um, should I be buying oh. it? So I've had almost entirely junk new car. And so like thinking about like really, really trying to avoid the credit card debt, it, you know, just, you know, consumer debt other than, you know, um, for, for major purchases like a home or car and uh and then again if you know the the, i would say the used car is the best car you know we're a one car household and um i've had almost all junker cars my entire adult life i bought a brand new car when i graduated from college and that's the only new car i've ever had in my life um yeah i think the most that i've paid for a car ever other than that was five thousand dollars wow and you know i'm driving i'm driving around with car i mean since probably you know 2007 like it's been like 2007 since i had a car with less than 150,000 miles wow and again you know if you if you send it like that you can end up with um you know you can end up with like something that like costs a lot to maintain you know that's what you don't we don't want to end up in a situation where something if so something happened to our car and it's like well what do we do you know i think we want to replace the transmission on a car with 168,000 miles on it, 
But um, yeah, I think of the less money you can spend on cars, I mean, so practically a deadweight loss of funds. Yeah. Um, that's a great way to save right there. Yeah, that's all really good, Aaron. I think when Stephen and I started our blogging project, we we had been reading uh, Mr. Money Mustache, who was kind of the godfather of the FIRE movement, I would say. And he really <laughs> appealed to a lot of the millennials. It was fun to read. Um, but he kind of appealed to that audience. And we were saying, what if somebody took these tactics and employed them in a household that had kingdom mindset behind it. And so uh, I definitely think there's things to be learned from there. Like you said, even if we're not going to uh, try to save up the bare minimum amount so we can live on $18,000 a year for the rest of our lives in total austerity. Um, so that's good. Um, I just wanted to kind of what, say, things. <laughs> go ahead. Well, I just want to say the thing about the, the fire approach that I do like, and this idea of saving a boatload of money. And once you, once you hit your point where you could retire, like, Hey, if I needed to, I can survive for the rest of my life um, on this savings. Um, you've essentially gone anti-fragile in that now you can afford to take a lot of risk, swing for the fences, start tweeting anything you want. Right. True. Because, you've got that base of security. And I think if you even had like, hey, if I had zero income for a decade, we're going to be able to survive and kind of like cut down. Like, man, that, that empowers you to take a lot of risk. The more financial margin you have, the more risk you can take on. Um, and, and, and so that, that is kind of, I think about that in terms of like anti-fragility. Once you have like a baseline that's pretty safe, you can really kind of swing for the fences at the other end. And so uh, there's something to think about. Well, we'll take it from a guy who uprooted from, from New York City and kind of put your money where your mouth is here. Uh, I think there's just a lot of good stuff to, to pull. We touched on 1% of the wisdom that I've pulled out of your, <laughs> your newsletter. So I would encourage anybody who's listening to us who doesn't already know Aaron's work to go check it out. Uh, will you just tell our people where they can find you, Aaron? Yes, is at themasculinist.com. Sign up for the newsletter. And there's, there's, you, you've got the email newsletter. You do, the, there's blog material, and you do a podcast as well. That's right. More stuff coming soon, but it's all there on that homepage, so you can find it at themasculinist.com. Fantastic. Well, well, we're we're uh, running short on time, but Aaron, we really appreciate your uh, contribution and and your presence. We appreciate what you do when you're not with us, and we appreciate you giving your time to our crew today. No, thank you for having me on.